This comes first from Acts 1, 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? <clears throat> he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And then from Acts 22, 22 through 24, and 32 through 33. <clears throat> Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, who you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted, at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This is the word of the Lord. You, you may be seated. Thanks, Ryan. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Mitchell Carter. I'm one of the pastors here along with Jeff Wilkins. And as always, it's a privilege and a pleasure to be able to proclaim God's word to you. Would you pray with me for his blessing on our time? Father, you are good. We've confessed your goodness already this morning in so many ways. Father, now we praise you uh, that you, even though you are far beyond our comprehension that you've made yourself known to us, that you've given us your word and revealed yourself to us, that you've revealed yourself to us in Jesus. We pray as we look in your word that we would know you more and that it would change us, uh, that we wouldn't just get information, but that our lives would be changed, that we would, as we behold Christ, that the spirit would make us more and more like him, that we would be renewed more and more into his image. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would let us see Christ clearly. Uh, help us to do away with the sin that clings so closely that we might follow after Christ. Do all these things, not in our own power, but in your power. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Well, the title for the sermon today 
I'm usually not big on titles. I don't think that I've ever actually mentioned one up here, but the title for today is How to Christ's Ascension and Pentecost Benefit Us. Last week, Jeff preached on how Christ's resurrection benefits us, and this is uh, now a mini-series. It's four weeks that we're gonna spend focusing on the works of the resurrected Christ, focusing on what Christ does and is doing and will do after his resurrection. And there are a couple of reasons why we're focusing on that. The first reason is that the work of Christ is central to the Christian faith. This is the crux, the center of what we believe and what we confess as Christians. Uh, The Bible says this again and again. It says it in a very famous place in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, finishing up his letter, and he says what he has proclaimed to them, what he has delivered to them. This is the center of the Christian message. This is what is most important, and this is what he says, starting in verse three. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is what Jesus came and accomplished. We're looking at Jesus's life. Uh, If you look at the historic creeds of the Christian faith, the Apostles' Creed, which we confess here often, uh, and the Nicene Creed that we confess this morning, if you have your order of worship, actually open it back up and look at the Nicene Creed. Look at how big of a chunk of what we confess to be true is the work of Jesus. If you had the Apostles' Creed in front of you, it would look even bigger. It's perhaps two-thirds of the Apostles' Creed that focuses on what Jesus did in his life, death, resurrection, and afterwards. And this is central to what we believe. So if someone comes up to you and says, hey, what, what do Christians believe? What do you believe? Our temptation sometimes is to begin with ethics. Well, we think this is wrong and this is right. We think you should live like this and not like this. And that is certainly a part of Christianity, but it's not the crux. The core of what we believe is that the God who created the earth and everything in it, when we were in trouble, saw our plight and didn't leave us in it, but actually came and lived among us. And he lived a perfect life. He died a death that he did not deserve but death couldn't hold him. And so he rose again from the dead and returned to the father, not to sit and twirl his thumbs, but so that he could reign as king over the universe and that he'll come again one day. This is what we believe. He will come again one day to judge the living and the dead. This is the center of our faith. And so we wanted to spend some time focusing on it. A second reason why is that We are tempted sometimes to think that the work of Jesus ended with his resurrection, or at the very least that it was put on pause. So Jesus did all these things. We confess his incarnation at Christmas, and then we go through the year and we talk about his death and resurrection at Easter, and then we kind of think, I'm not sure what else. I know he's coming back, so maybe Jesus just kind of took a break in between when he returned to the Father and when he's coming back. 
And the thing that can kind of lie underneath that is Jesus's work ended at the resurrection and our work began. So anything that we do in church, any growth that we have in our knowledge of God and holiness, uh, evangelizing, telling other people about the gospel, telling them about what Jesus did, that's kind of on us now. That's the feeling that we can have when we don't talk about what Jesus has done after his resurrection. If you look at the diagram in your outline, and before you look, if anyone is a graphic designer, I'm sorry. (laughs) Clearly, this is not my forte, but I wanted you to have a visual to see this. If you can read two-point font, you'll see below this that this is not uh, original to me. Uh, I got this out of a book called Salvation Accomplished by the Son. It's written by Robert Peterson, who's a professor of mine in seminary. It's a wonderful book. It's definitely not a page turner, but it is very insightful into the work of Christ. But he has this diagram of the nine saving events in the life of Christ. His incarnation, his righteous and sinless life, his death on the cross, resurrection, his ascension, I think the beard's getting into it. His ascension, his session where he sits on his throne as king over the universe, Pentecost where he pours out the Holy Spirit, his intercession where he functions as a priest on our behalf, and then his second coming. And what I want you to see is that the resurrection is kind of in the middle, maybe even toward the front that this is not the last thing that Jesus did, but Jesus continues to work on your behalf and on my behalf. And so we want to focus on these things to remind ourselves that Jesus is not absent, uh, that Jesus continues to work. And we're gonna see a little bit more of that today. Jeff next week is gonna preach on Jesus's session and his intercession. But this week, again, Christ's ascension his return to the Father, where Jesus, after he rose from the dead, still in a body, returned back to the Father. He ascended into heaven, like Ryan just read, and then his Pentecost, where he pours out the Holy Spirit on his church. And the question that I want to kind of drive us today is that first question in your outline, why is the ascension good news? Why is it good news that Jesus left us? That he lived among us and then said, I'm leaving. And the first thing you might think is, I don't know if that is good news. But I want you to see that Jesus tells us that it's good news. In John 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples. All of John 14 through 17 is this what's sometimes called the upper room discourse, where Jesus is teaching his disciples the night before he is crucified. This is actually what we're gonna be preaching on this summer, John 14 through 17. And this is what Jesus says in John 16, starting in verse five. But now I am going to him who sent me. That's the father. I'm leaving, I'm returning to him. I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. The disciples, when they hear that Jesus is leaving them after three years 
of teaching them and being with them in companionship, they're sad. They're troubled that their leader is leaving them. Listen to what Jesus says in verse seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. It's better for you. This is a good thing for you that I am going away. He tells us why. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. That's helper with a capital H. Later, Jesus tells the disciples, this is the Holy Spirit, the comforter. He's coming. If I don't go away, he's not going to come. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the reason why the ascension is good news is that the ascension leads to Pentecost. Jesus leaving means the Holy Spirit coming. Jeff mentioned a book last week by a man named Rankin Wilborn, who's a pastor in California. It's called Union with Christ. And with Jeff, I would commend that book to you. Uh, I think it's very helpful. Rankin Wilborn in talking about this passage in John, this is what he says. The only thing that could be better than having Jesus with you, beside you, would be having Jesus within you, wherever you are and wherever you go. This is the good news of Pentecost. This is the good news of the Holy Spirit coming and living within us. That Jesus hasn't left us, he's actually come closer, he's come within. What Ryan read at the beginning of Acts helps us understand what it is that the Holy Spirit is doing. Uh, Ryan read Acts 1, 1 through 11, and this is how Acts 1 begins. In the first book, O Theophilus, this is Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts. He also wrote the gospel according to Luke. And so he's referencing that book. This is volume two. He says, in the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. This word began is very important that Luke uses because what he's saying is the gospel that begins with the announcement of Jesus's birth and ends with the resurrection, that's all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So what's the implication? That this book now is all that Jesus continued to do and teach. Luke continues. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So the disciples say, okay, you're back. Are we gonna keep going now? Like, are we gonna keep doing your work? Are you bringing the kingdom right now? This is Jesus's response to them. He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So what Jesus says is, my work is continuing, but it's continuing through the Holy Spirit. All that Jesus began to do and teach in his life on earth is continued now by the Holy Spirit. And this is, this is where, when I realized this, it gives you goosebumps a little bit, that Jesus's work in his ascension looks like it's diminishing. He's leaving us. But what in fact happens is Jesus's work multiplies a thousandfold. Jesus ascends back into heaven and as we talked about throughout Hebrews, as Jeff is gonna talk about next week, his ministry still continues for us in heaven. 
He is in the real throne room of God, not the temple on earth, ministering on our behalf. But his work on earth continues as well. His work on earth continues in the Holy Spirit. And it's not just one person walking around in Israel with his 12 disciples. The Holy Spirit indwells every single believer and spreads out to the very ends of the earth. So Jesus's work in the world multiplies exponentially. This is amazing. What looks like diminishing is increasing. So the question that you might have is, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? What does it look like to see what Jesus continues to do and teach through the work of the Holy Spirit? The first thing I'd like to say is that sometimes we we have a problem with this. We, we get a little mixed up. And what we want often is we want things that we can see and things that we can feel. And so we think of the work of the Holy Spirit and we think about the butterflies that are in our stomach during worship sometimes. Or we, we think about feeling led in a particular direction and we don't know why. The Holy Spirit does do those things, but if that's all that you're looking for, in the work of the Holy Spirit, you're gonna truncate the Holy Spirit's work. You're gonna narrow it down much narrower than it ever should have been. The Bible talks about the work of the Holy Spirit and it has two kind of angles on the work of the Holy Spirit that we're gonna look at. The first angle, it's in your outline, is that the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ. Jeff mentioned this idea of union with Christ last week when he preached on Romans 6 that the Holy Spirit takes us and joins us to Christ. And so everything that is true of Jesus becomes true of us. Everything that he has, that he possesses, we have. So Romans 6 said that we died with Christ and so we died to our sin. And that just as Christ raised from the dead, we also rise again to new life. The Bible has two ways that it talks about this union with Christ and they're complementary. They're not contradictory. One is what we saw last week, this idea of being in Christ. The Bible uses this language a lot. If you wanna find a place that it uses it primarily, it's Ephesians 1, three through 14. Another one that we see a lot is in our assurance of pardon, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus those who have united themselves to him, those who are joined to Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation because he already took it. There's only blessing for you. There's only what Jesus has inherited. The other way that the Bible talks about this is that Christ is in you. So there's the fact that you are in Christ and then there's Christ in you. Romans 8.1 talks about you being in Christ Listen to the language of Romans 8, 10, and 11. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So these are both the same thing. You in Christ and Christ in you are two ways of talking about the same thing, that you are united to Jesus Christ. If you look again in your 
bulletin or your order of worship, there's a quote in the reflection section. And I think this is, this is one of the major takeaways of union with Christ and of the Spirit's role in uniting us to Christ. So it's a quote from John Calvin who lived a long time ago. He lived in the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, the 16th century. And uh, John Calvin wrote a book called Institutes of the Christian Religion. Um, he started it when he was young and kept revising it over the course of his life. It's meant to be an introductory to the Christian faith. Here is what we believe as Christians. And when he transitions from his section on the work of Christ, on what Christ has done, to the section on the Holy Spirit, this is the opening paragraph. This is that transition. Listen to what he says. How do we receive the benefits of Christ? All this stuff that I just talked about in the work of Christ, he's saying, how do we get that? How do we receive it? First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. So as long as I'm over here and Christ is over there separated from me, all that he's done gives me no benefit. It's useless to me. How does it become of use to me? How does it benefit me? Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. It is by the Spirit that we come to enjoy Christ and all his benefits. Everything that is true of Jesus Christ because the Spirit has united you to him is true of you. Jesus is the son of God, so God the Father can call us sons and daughters who are heirs of everything that Jesus is an heir of. All of Jesus' inheritance, the riches of the world, are yours because you're united to Jesus. This is why we can talk about the fact, like in Titus 3, that it's not because of anything we've done, but we actually benefit from what Jesus has done. That is what union with Christ is, that we are sharing in the benefits of Jesus. So that's the first way that the Bible talks about the work of the Holy Spirit. That's a, it's kind of a binary way. So you, you can hear that you're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. The other way that the Bible talks about the work of the Holy Spirit is progressive. Jeff talked about this distinction last week, that there is a definitive work and that there is a progressive over the course of time. So if you, you look at this chart, you can see that it's, we're looking at beginning, middle, end. We're looking at the beginning of the Christian life and then now in the Christian life and then how that's going to end up. And the Nicene Creed that we confess this morning when it summarizes it, says that the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. That in creation, God forms Adam out of the dust in Genesis 2, and then what does he do? He breathes into him. That's the same word for spirit. He breathes life into Adam. Just like in creation, the spirit is the agent of life, in recreation, the spirit is the agent of life. So you and me and everyone in the world were dead in our sins. That's what the Bible teaches. We had no hope apart from him. What the Holy Spirit does is he comes and he takes out our dead heart and puts in a living, beating heart and makes us alive in Christ. 
so that we're no longer dead in our sins, but we're alive in Christ. This is what we call conversion or regeneration. The Holy Spirit initiates our life, but his work isn't done when we become Christians. He actually sustains and strengthens our life all throughout the course of our life. The theological word is sanctification. It's growth in holiness. So when you become a Christian, you are a baby. It doesn't matter if you were 60 when you became a Christian or if you were three when you became a Christian. You are a baby Christian. The goal that the Bible continually sets forth is maturity. How are you going to get there? Again, if you think of the work of Jesus stopping at the resurrection, your natural inclination is gonna be work hard. The way that you get mature is that you work hard. You do the right things and you, you get there. But the Bible does not put it that way. Philippians 2 does talk about working hard, but I want you to hear the tension that Paul has in this. Therefore, my beloved... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Effort, work, work towards maturity, but then he follows it up with this. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You and I have no hope of maturity on our own. There is nothing good that comes up out of us that is not from God. That's why it's called the fruit of the Holy Spirit not the fruit of working hard. That love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are things that are from God, not from you. So he gives those to us and he grows those in us over the course of our life. It's not just growth and holiness that's attributed to the Holy Spirit, but it's all of life. That in hard times, the Holy Spirit is called our comfort and our peace, and our joy, that he gives us faith more and more in what Christ has done, that he, just as he does when we're converted, as he pulls back the veil so that we can see the truth of the gospel, over the course of your life, he continually pulls back the veil over and over and over again that you can see more and more of Christ. And then the final result of the Holy Spirit is that this is perfected. That you don't get to the end of your life and think, well, I hope I did enough good things. That you get to the end of your life and you depend on the work of the Holy Spirit to perfect you, whether it's when you die or when Christ returns. That you're made perfect in holiness and that sin that has clung to you so closely over the course of your life is finally ripped away from you. And you live in holiness for all of eternity that that veil that was in front of our face that we couldn't quite see with clarity, the glory of God is finally ripped away and you will see God perfectly for all of eternity. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. So I wanna come back to that original question. Do you think of the ascension as good news? Do you rejoice when you think about the fact that the Holy Spirit has been given to you? I think one litmus test for this is, do you pray? When trouble comes, when life gets hard, 
Is your inclination to ask God for help because you know that it is him who is working in you or is your first step to game plan? When your marriage is falling apart, do you buy four more books on marriage? When your children continue to be disobedient and continue to war with you, do you go to a couple parenting conferences thinking that's gonna fix it? I think those things are good, but is that your first step? Or do you pray that God would actually change what is going on? Do you trust that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives and grows and sustains life? Another question for you that's related, but I think distinct, is do you find yourself despairing a lot? Would you consider yourself a pessimist? Do you see either yourself in your own life and think, I continue to lose my patience over and over and over. There's no way this is gonna get better. I live in this dead end job and there's no way anybody here is gonna change. There's no way I can change it. I might as well just get used to it. Or with other people, my brother-in-law is horrible and he's never gonna change. I might as well just consider that every Thanksgiving from now to the end of eternity is gonna be miserable. Do you think that nothing can change? Because the Holy Spirit brings life from death. So if you're continuing in despair without any hope of change, maybe you need to believe in the Holy Spirit. Charles Spurgeon is, uh, was, he's not alive anymore, was a preacher in London. He's nicknamed the Prince of Preachers uh, in the 1800s. He's very well known for being an excellent preacher. What a lot of people don't know is that Spurgeon struggled with depression and despondency his entire life. He lacked confidence in preaching. And one day in class, a student asked him how he could be confident preaching the word if when he talked about it, he lacked confidence so much. And what Spurgeon responded with was that every time he walked into the pulpit, every step that he took up, he said to himself, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Because he knew that the task that he was trying to accomplish was impossible outside of the work of the Holy Spirit. So as you walk into marriage counseling, do you walk in in despair, or do you walk in saying, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit. When you're headed to work and you know that you're gonna have a hard conversation with your boss or with your coworker, do you believe that the Holy Spirit can make good things come out of bad things? Do you believe that he can actually accomplish something or are you convinced that you can't do it so no one can do it? Do you believe in the work of the Holy Spirit? Does it change the way that you approach your life? I pray that it does. I pray that this conversation doesn't end when I say amen. If you'll notice, the handout has a lot of verses that I did not read. Uh, 
There's no way in 30 minutes I'm gonna be able to explain the work of the Holy Spirit throughout scripture. Go and read those, especially those that are above the chart. See the amazing work that the Holy Spirit, that is attributed to the Holy Spirit in scripture and let those be confidence for you, not in your own work, but in the work of God in and through you. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we believe in you. We trust that your work is hopeful, that your work, that you are working. We trust that we are not the sum total of our own abilities and our own accomplishments. We trust that you are doing something in us, in this church, in the world, And so we pray that you'd continue to work. We pray that you would continue to accomplish Jesus' work on earth and that, like the Apostle Paul, we pray that the work that you've begun, that you would bring it to completion. And we pray trusting you that you would do it. Would you bring your work to completion in us? Would you present us to Christ as a bride without spot or blemish or any such thing? Would you present us mature in Christ? on the day that he returns. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.